You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire, one hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Tēnā koutou katoa. Ko Joe tōko ingoa, nau mai hairu mai ki te Wire mō tēnei rā. Kia ora and welcome to The Wire for Rāmere. Uh, Friday the 24th of February. Uh, also the last Friday wire for a little bit of time as well. I am joined by my, oh first of all I'm your host Joe, I'm joined by, by my producer Daniel. Daniel how are we doing? Good, good. I didn't have breakfast but I just had some cake so the sugar is running through my body. So and I'm ready. We're all very excited for a very very stacked show as per usual. This week we'll be looking into why we chase well-being and how it may be unhealthy for us. I'll be speaking to Stephen Jackson, a professor of sports, policy and politics at the University of Otago on this matter. I'll also, ooh, sorry, I'll also be looking into sports washing and the Women's FIFA World Cup from a bit of an excerpt from the playbook. Daniel will be bringing us city counselling this week with Mike Lee and he'll also be looking into the ethics of our relationship with robots. We have a great show for you guys today, so make sure you keep it on the B for the next hour. Here aha or fakaro, we'd love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces. So toki pa tui mai, you can text us on 5395. Why my or give us a call in studio on 093093879. Also remember you can catch all these stories and more by podcast on the 95BFM website. Now, into the wire. Fura Media Friday. Now, tell me about your father. City Councilling on 95BFM, our weekly chat with the good people of Auckland Council. There are 38 organisations who are issuing a public call for Auckland Transport to urgently deliver the long overdue inner wet cycle lanes and street improvements. The Waitomata Saver Routes, also known as the Grey Lynn and Westmere Improvements, is the project that hangs in the balance. The Waitomata Saver routes are a vital link between the adjoining projects. Dropping the middle project would mean network benefits were lost and the schools and communities of the inner west would be left disconnected. I spoke with Mike Lee about his thoughts on the inner west cycle lanes and street improvements. Um, What are the inner west street improvements that Auckland Council is considering? Essentially, this uh, project is a... The common factor is uh, a cycleway um, running from the start of, or the the southern end of Point Chivalier Road uh, through um, down to Muola Road to Westmere, um, and that is a, a a component, one component. Then there is I would call a, call a central component, um, which. Um, Travels through Grey Lynn, uh, Richmond Road, Surrey Crest, uh, Garnet Road, and that currently is still at the planning stage. And then uh, there is a, another component uh, which extends from the end of the Grey Lynn Shopping Centre uh, 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 virtually to uh, a Ponsonby Road. And so that is up for decision very, very soon. Yes, okay, and do you support those plans and projects? The, the, the latter one, the Great North Road one, as it's designed now, no, I definitely do not. As regards the first one, 
to Point Chevalier to um, Yola Road to Westmere one. Yes, I support that. Point Chevalier one, we'll call it that. Uh, largely uses the footpath, takes advantage of wide footpaths, does not um, remove too many car uh, parking spots which are, are vital for small business, which in turn are vital for the vibrancy and life of the, of the place. Come back to Great North Road. Great North Road is one of Auckland's main arterials. In, in this case, AT does not intend to use the very wide footpaths, but intends to create lanes in the road space. Um, therefore, it rem will remove 130 car parks. The government, as you would be aware, the council have plans to enforce uh, intensification everywhere in Auckland. Three dwellings, three storeys on every section. Not all areas of Auckland are suitable uh, for intensification. Therefore, the areas that are suitable for intensification become very valuable, important to us strategically. And Great North Road, the Great North Road Ridge is one of those places which is absolutely ideal for high-rise intensification. As AT intends to, turning Great North Road into a, 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 an arid uh, Simon Street with high-speed busway and cycleways and very little parking for local business and does not um, and rejects the plan by the local people um, for a boulevard with trees down the median strip, then that's not a good idea. And so I support those local people who are pleading with AT, hey, listen, listen to us. We have a plan which is better than your one. It's not as heavily engineered. Um, and, and it retains a lot of amenity. The Grey Lynn to Westmere improvement is the one linking the adjoining projects. So dropping the middle project would mean the network benefits were lost. And the schools and communities of the inner west would be left disconnected. What is your reaction to that? I understand the reason for that. Again, that one will have a, lo a lot of local opposition, given the, the very bad experience from a previous attempt at cycleways, well, previous cycleways um, in that area. But uh, I, I'm not sure why, but um, Waka Kotahi um, is not going to fund that, uh, that central segment. They may eventually, who knows, but the reason why they're not up for decision now, I understand, is for that reason and probably that reason alone. Um, yeah, what's exactly in the plan that it looks now don't you do don't you agree with and how should it look to be able to implement it are you talking about the central component the grayland component yes yeah um to be honest with you um we haven't been looking closely at, at those plans but um but to be honest with you because it's not on the table for decision and given all the other things we've had to focus on, especially with the floods and the extreme weather events, um, I'm way more familiar with, with the, the two components rather than the, the one in the middle 
except that I know that there's quite a bitter experience and quite divisive um, community views on that. And like a culture war that's been going on uh, in this area um, where people um, becoming very acrimonious in terms of the of the debate. Let's try and look for some sort of compromise here. Let's not try and force solutions down people's throats. Now, AT, by all accounts, are going to force their um, heavily engineered version down the throats of the community. Let's all step back a bit and let's come up with a compromise that we can all live with. One thing um, is certain, I haven't found anyone who is opposed to cycle waste per se. In 2020, the Auckland Climate Plan was adopted and in 2022 also the Transport Emission Reduction Pathway to enforce this climate plan. Could you describe this Transport Emission Reduction Pathway for us? A very good article in the New Zealand Herald this morning by Matthew Houghton, whom, whom I nor, don't normally uh, agree with, but he's made the point of um, talking about uh, climate change mitigation, and that is reducing carbon emissions and also um, clim climate change adaptation, which means recognising that we've got the message three weeks ago that climate change is here. We had a wake-up call from Mother Nature, and we're going to have more um, climate change events. And so some good, will, I hope, will come out of this and make focus our bureaucracy more on the basic public services that people want done on their behalf and need done on their behalf. Also, research shows that cars are responsible for 50% of the emissions. And in the climate plan, it also says we need to reduce those because Auckland is in a climate emergency. We have less than a decade to make the major changes to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. Quote, we must make urgent radical changes to how and what we do as individuals, communities and businesses. Also, in the transport emissions reduction pathway, um, it says the first point of necessary transformation is to supercharge walking and cycling. We need to make it safe and attractive to walk and cycle everywhere locally. To do this, we will need upgraded and expanded walking and cycling networks that serve more people. And I don't know how to rhyme what is in this TURP and the decision to pass one of those inner west's important cycleways and street improvements. Could you help me to rhyme this what is in this TURP, what is in this reduction pathway with the decision of Auckland Transport to keep pausing the plan? Uh, Daniel, has it occurred to you that heavily engineered construction projects, whatever they are for, use a tremendous amount of concrete and steel and cause significant carbon emissions in their own right? And so if you're coming back to this, what we discussed a few minutes ago, I, I support low emission, low um, intervention, nimble cycleways, not heavy, massively heavily engineered, very expensive cycleways, which in terms of making a real difference across the Auckland region, just cannot be afforded. All the present 
um, approach does is enrich a few overseas owned construction companies who get most of these pro projects. And so I have no argument at all. Let me make it clear about the value of cycleways. I do have um, uh, an argument against a double think that suggests carrying on in the same old way uh, with heavy engineering is going to not only stop climate change, it certainly won't reduce emissions. I think there's now a beautiful democratic moment where citizens stand up and say, we really want more cycle lanes and street improvements, and there's a concrete plan how to do that. There's also overwhelming support from the community for those three projects. There's 38 organizations that call for Auckland Transport to urgently deliver the inner west street improvements. Six of those are schools that just want safer streets for the students to get to school. There's the Graylin Residents Association. There are several businesses from Ponsonby Road and K Road that support the improvements. There's advocacy groups. And my question is, how do you value this democratic moment? And do you think Auckland Transport will listen to these organizations and citizens? Well, Daniel, you, you may not be aware that uh, we had an organized democratic moment in Auckland a few months ago, and the people of my ward um, re-elected me by a majority of over a thousand because I'm inclined to listen to everyone to try and come up with a, a more practical, um, affordable and low-emission type approach to building cycleways, which is one of the reasons I was elected, rather than opposing heavily engineered cycleways such as Rangahui Road, which hardly anyone uses. The fact of the matter is we have to take the community with us and we have to try and build a consensus about going forward. The obligations the council has to address the, this first real message about climate change from nature, um, we have to use our resources in a smart way. The fact of the matter is restricting roads when most of the, the cars that are coming into this country now are electric, it's not necessarily that smart either. How do you think we can get people on bicycles? To be honest with you, I, I'm a passionate public transport advocate. Um, I certainly support cycling, but where we are failing in, in, this, in Auckland um, is, is public transport. Public transport is just over half of what it was pre-COVID. Cycling is down 12% pre-COVID. You know, let's learn from international experiences which can tell us um, this is, which, which is the best way to get people onto cycles. All the money that's been spent is not working. So surely we should be, be and it's causing division, so surely we should be thinking again um, rather than building cycleways along heavily engineered corporate model. I, I, I think we need something different. That was Mike Lee about the inner west cycle lanes and street improvements. Have you tried mindfulness? Try mindfulness. City Councilling on 95BFM. I wish some of your dozy mates in the media had got a fix on their job and started being reporters and journalists, not editorialists and analysts, which they're not qualified to do. Uh, present company accepted, of course. The Wire. Are we in the midst of a well-being pandemic? That question may seem curious, even contradictory, 
However, researchers are encouraging us to look around. The concept is everywhere and spreading in the media, government institutions, transnational organisations, in schools and workplaces, as well as even in the marketplaces. Uh, I spoke to Stephen Jackson, a professor of sport policy and politics at the University of Otago on this matter, and I started off by asking him about this wellness pandemic and if it is prevalent in society today. Yes, uh, well, a pandemic is, is really an epidemic, a disease uh, that's spread over multiple countries or continents, um, and you know, while well-being itself may not be a disease, we sort of assert that it is infectious in terms of its global spread, and it can be harmful if it's misused and exploited. And that's often a challenging thing to explain because who could possibly be against well-being? Um, and it's not the concept itself. It's it's more about how it's um, being exploited by others. Um, and so if, you know, you consider and you just look around your in the media, and now there's entire sections of newspapers dedicated to well-being, uh, government institutions, uh, the World Health Organization. Um, if you look in schools, in your workplace, um, there's certainly uh, probably evidence of well-being programs or hints of it. And uh, the latest statistics show that the wellness economy is estimated to reach something like $7 trillion U.S. by the year 2025. What is well-being washing? Yes, uh, this is something we sort of derived in relation to similar concepts that people may have heard of, such as green washing or rainbow washing and sports washing. And each of the, those concepts sort of represent a strategic attempt to um, use discourse uh, to influence how an organization, you know, its branding and culture connotes something positive. Um, so... In a real formal sense, we would say it's the strategic attempt to use language and imagery, uh, policies and practices as part of an organization's culture uh, to connote something positive and virtuous. But in reality, it's designed to try and enhance our productivity in the workplace, uh, to reduce health costs, uh, minimize uh, reputational risk and uh, perhaps most dangerously, to promote conformity, control, and surveillance. And sometimes that's a little bit hard for people to see, but, um, you know, it's often done in a very informal way in workplace well-being programs where you're encouraged, but if you don't participate, then um, you're, um, you're sort of stigmatized and, you know, viewed as an outsider. And all this while, the whatever your workplace is, is sort of, you know, reaping the benefits of saying, see, we provide all these well-being programs for our employees, so they should be healthy and happy. Would you say that humans are obsessed with well-being to the point where it could become quite toxic? Uh, I think as humans, we, we all seek quality of life and happiness. Um, and, you know, that, that's some of the uh, original origins of well-being traced back to antiquity. Um, so that that is not unusual and in fact uh, that's what we should be seeking our happiness quality of life and well-being the problem comes when particular groups uh, that can be governments and it could be corporations um, but others um, have have the sort of power to define what quality of life and happiness are and how best to achieve them so you know today we live in a very consumer-based society so we're often told we can achieve health and happiness you know, through consumption of commodities, you know, bigger houses, uh, newer cars, and 
a range of other things. Um, but if you think about it, we all know we're supposed to you know, exercise and eat well for a healthy life. So it's quite simple in that sense. But that's more challenging when you're overworked uh, or don't have a job. You're underpaid and worried about job insecurity. Um, and again, it gets compounded when you have a job and you're doing your best and then your workplace may institute a, uh, a well-being program which you feel obligated to participate in, which takes up time at work, which means you then have to do your work at night and weekends. So it's this sort of um, perpetual cycle of, of um, activities and, and policies that can impact negatively on our health and well-being. Well-being is flexible in the sense that it can be easily inserted into a diverse range of contexts, but it's also surrounded by this sort of halo. It has a halo effect to it, which automatically bestows it with this positive meaning. Could you tell me a bit about this? Yeah, so I think that's why uh, it, it's so easy for well-being to, to be translated into well-being washing. Uh, and you described it very well there in terms of its flexibility, but this halo effect uh, and well-being is one of those words like um, freedom and democracy and liberty. No one would ever argue against those things. Um, they're they're just they just have this positive connotation, and so it's difficult to to view them in a, any sort of negative way, and that allows the word then the concept well-being to to be inserted or implemented in relation to um, exercise programs, into workplace well-being programs, in schools, uh, in the media, in, in uh, you know, living frameworks, as the New Zealand government has done, and a whole range of other places. Um, but that also means it can be exploited. Because it's positive, it can be exploited uh, in the same way that greenwashing can be exploited by uh, petrol companies like Ineos and others. Uh, so that that's sort of what that means. Another perspective of well-being is, is individual responsibility. Individual responsibility has become a response to rising social inequality. It focuses on offering an alternative to GDP as a measure of overall national prosperity. Could you tell me a bit about this and touch on national prosperity and maybe how that relates to well-being? Yeah, so the uh, well-being itself in terms of its theoretical conceptualizations is obviously quite complex to explain, but we, we sort of look at it in, in simplistic terms. There's first the subjective well-being, uh, which is a sort of holistic measure of an individual's physical, uh, mental, and spiritual health, and that's the kind of thing that's, that the World Health uh, Five Index tries to capture. The second one, that the one you're referring to, is generally referred to as an objective well-being. So, as you say, it's a response to uh, rising social inequality. And these were, you know, some of the the world's nation states got together, recognizing that um, the the current measures of of things like GDP can measure something elements of an economy, but it really doesn't say very much. It isn't an accurate indicator of the quality of life. Um, the health standards, the education standards, etc., of citizens within the country, and so they were trying to find new ways of uh, of measuring um, what what that might mean, uh, sort of well-being economies, and and some governments, including New Zealand, have tried to build the word well-being into these new um, frameworks. The challenge, of course, is that trying to trying to have a 
any kind of measure of well-being is, is very complex, and trying to address it in terms of inequality is difficult. But what we've noticed is that even when they're trying to do something positive uh, within the current paradigm we live in, increasingly it's about shifting the responsibility for health. It's, it's, it, it is a government responsibility, but it quickly gets shifted into individual responsibility. And again, if people just think about their own workplace, they're probably getting messages about, yep, we care about you and look after your colleagues, ask them about their well-being, but inevitably it's about you. And you'll have a department, a HR, Human Resources Department, that's carefully monitoring um, they'll offer assistance, but they'll be carefully monitoring your um, how many sick days you're having, uh, if you're having any trouble, and it will all be documented. Um, that could help you, but it could also be used against you in some cases. Um, and that's, that's quite unfortunate. At the end of this article, you've written that we may need a vaccine of critical reflection. What does critical reflection mean to you? And where do we start with something which people might naturally think is, is obviously quite good for us, that being well-being. Yeah, I, I think uh, not to overcomplicate things, I, I think it's a matter of first, it starts with ourselves and our, our own family and fano. That is, decide for yourself what makes you happy. Um, but beyond that, it's, it's sort of um, becoming a, a little bit more critical, critically reflecting on some of the, the popular and some of the politically-based well-being programs and, and messages that are out there. Um, that includes, for example, in the, in the marketplace where companies are trying to sell us, uh, whether it's cosmetics or exercise programs or um, all kinds of things that are about our well-being, um, we should probably question them and go, is that really going to help and can I afford it? And at a much broader level, I think we have to start um, you know, evaluating government policies and corporate programs um, and, and checking to see is what they're doing actually going to help? Is it making me feel better now? Um, does it have the potential to make me and my colleagues feel better? Or is it something that um, is actually making me unwell and perhaps even sick? Do you think that taking care of oneself, well-being, doesn't come as naturally to people anymore, at least in today's society, and it's looked at as more of a chore? I think it's becoming increasingly challenging and again in part it's due to that sort of positive halo effect that surrounds the term well-being because we're all supposed to seek it just like you know health and well-being where we need to take care of ourselves and our uh, family and family um, but that becomes much more complicated in a, uh, at times of COVID for example in times of natural disasters which we're witnessing around the world in times of you know major challenges like, you know, geopolitical, military conflicts, uh, climate change, but more locally about, you know, the cost of inflation, um, job insecurity, and the way we're treated at work um, itself in many workplaces. Um, and again, the challenge is well-being being built into some of the policies and programs that we feel obligated. And uh, I think in some cases, we're supposed to feel as if we're we're, that we feel better, that our well-being is being enhanced. But in many cases, that's not happening. And then there could be guilt associated with that. Um, but there could also be this, um, the, the fear that you just want to withdraw, but you know that you might be stigmatized by your 
by the, the company or by your coworkers for not participating, um, not being a, a team player. And, you know, that's becoming more evident as there's more of these, you know, uh, well-being uh, champions and well-being um, leaders within organizations. In and of itself, there's nothing negative, but um, when you have an obligation or feel an obligation to participate in something that you don't want to, um, that is something that can make you unwell. That was Stephen Jackson, Professor of Sport Policy and Politics at the University of Otago, speaking about the chase of well-being. You're on the wire for Ramedia Friday. Remember, you can text us in 5395 or 0930938798 if you wish to give us a call. That's 5395 if you wish to text in. 0930938798 if you wish to give us a call. Let us know what you think of all the pieces you've heard so far. We'll be right back after a short break. It's fucked. Yeah, it is. The Wire. What's a seven-letter word for Street Fighter? No idea. I know that tonight at Ponsonby Social Club, there's... DJs Chip Matthews and Katia. And tomorrow... The Feel Good Service Live, followed by Gareth XMF and Carisco. Same old Ponsonby Social Club, 152 Ponsonby Road. After last year's forced cancellation, AUSA is bringing Auckland Uni orientation back to its rightful home, Alfred Street. They've curated a festival that shows off UOA's favourite little lane. And best of all, it's free. That's right, no ticket needed to party at Alfred's. With food trucks, arcades, giveaways and live performances from Wax Mustang, Juju Lips, Messiah and more, Alfred Street is the place to be for University of Auckland Orientation 2023, February 27th to March 1st. Check out AUSA online for more. At this radio station, we do our utmost to abide by the Broadcasting Standards Authority and their rules and guidelines. If you seriously think we've crossed the line on air, give us a call on 309 4831 within 20 working days of the broadcast date and tell us about it. We'll be able to help you out and tell you the procedure if you wish to make a formal complaint to the Broadcasting Standards Authority. Fuck knuckles, cock and piss. Balls. Thank you.
my beast for words to fail me. I'm dwelling in the halls of a fallen sights of evil. I got to sweat the devil, plus I got to sweat my teeth. Do I gotta blow them brains out to get them chains out your head? Them black and mentally offense to be dead. Deceased, I gotta beast these, cause the beast be lurking up in them. So now I'm fucking men, it's stuck in them. The heron fits means tricks. You blunder when you blunder and don't need to run the kit. You might trip and find it hard to swallow this. But follow this down a dark alley and you're catching hollow tips. You got your shit, I got mine, leave it at that. Respect to you, thank me when I shank it next. Cause clever dreads can sever heads, weasel. I may be thin, but my lead friends be diesel. A law-abiding citizen, but shit, it's been long enough. Strong and tough, sniff this and you snuff. Snipe, step lively, don't try to bust me. Trusty fact that I'm friendly and you'll pussy that I love humans. They hate me. I love to live and let live, but no one's me. So until then, I chill when it's possible. But I got to pull pieces because with peace, I give it all I got. That's all I got to give. You gotta live and let live. I give it all I got. That's all I got to give. You gotta live and let live. Yo, I shall not kill. I will if I have to. You say I'm the one promoting violence. Well, I ask you. time's sake, yes or no, would you like to be leader of the National Party at some point? No, I'm just focused on what I'm doing. I'm one of those people that do it day by day, job by job. I'll save this clip and come back to it in five or ten years. <laughs> we'll see how it's aged. The Wire. Welcome back to The Wire for Ram Media Friday. I'll pass it over to Daniel. Daniel, you've asked me if it's okay to kick a robot dog. Yeah, true. I spoke about that question with philosopher uh, Professor 
Robert Sparrow from the Monash University about this question. And we also spoke about a possible answer that virtual ethics gives on this question. Uh, Sparrow is an expert in the relationships between humans and robots and the ethical questions surrounding our relationships with robots. How and why did you start researching the relationship and the ethical questions between humans and robots? When people talk about robots or artificial intelligence, they're almost always actually talking about what it means to be human. So the long history, for instance, of science fiction treatment of robots or worrying about machines that can think, uh, those stories are always really about us. Uh, people worry about what makes us um, what makes us human, what things are important in life, how our lives might be different if human beings were different in various ways. Um, so my work's in that tradition. I'm really interested in questions about us and the robot, you know, the idea of a, of a person who doesn't have consciousness, something that appears like us, but there's nothing on the inside, uh, that is useful to test various philosophical uh, theories about uh, what's important in our relationships with other people. And so that's why I started doing it. And then I realized that uh, there were a lot of military robots around that had, um, where people were genuinely interested in building um, autonomous weapon systems. And so a lot of my work's actually been on military uh, robots. But my work on social robots is really about questions and ethics more generally. You give an example of a young woman in Brisbane that kicks a dog shaped robot while she see it walking on the street. What is your opinion about that action? Why is it morally wrong? Or is it morally wrong what this woman did? Brisbane's got a long tradition of punk. And I, I mean, one thing that amused me about that story is kind of how punk that response uh, response was. Uh, this robot, uh, I don't if listeners have seen the Boston Dynamics Big Dog uh, robot, these uh, which are essentially military robots, and this uh, robot dog that this woman kicked uh, is a uh, like a small version of one of those uh, robots. So it is intended as a uh, surveillance robot or a military robot. I mean, it might have other uh, other uses. There's some obvious reasons why kicking a robot dog might be uh, wrong. I mean, it's someone else's property might might upset other people. Might be very expensive. Uh, to repair, but none of that is particularly uh, a distinct, uh, only true of robots. You know, someone kicks a washing machine or a car, all of that stuff uh, is, is true. Um, turns out people do have an intuition that there is something wrong with um, mistreating robots. Uh, whenever uh, one sees um, video of people hitting robots with sticks or, or kicking them. Some of the people on the comments are saying, oh, poor robot, you know, that's terrible, you shouldn't do that. Uh, what's pretty clear is if you shouldn't do that, it's not because the robot suffers. There's nothing in, the robots aren't intelligent, they're, they're not sentient, there's nothing uh, going on inside the robot's head that makes kicking it uh, wrong. Uh, so for me, if it's wrong, it's because of what it says about that woman's uh, character. Uh, now, I mean, again, I think we might admire <laughs> her character in, in a certain light, but we might also think that this shows a lack of self-control or it uh, shows a kind of um, tendency towards vi violence. And those things are relevant, even if there's nothing going on 
inside the robot. So for me, what's wrong with kicking a robot dog is really what it says about us. If that isn't the relevant intuition here, then I think people will struggle to explain why there is anything wrong with mistreating robots. Your position is that how we treat robots say something about us. It reveals our character and the sort of people we are, which it sounds a bit like the virtue ethics. Could you explain maybe how you arrive at this idea that it says something about our character? Virtue ethics is a tradition of ethical thinking that uh, suggests that sometimes when it comes to how we should act, we should think about uh, uh, what sort of person we would be or become, or what would be what would we be like if we acted in that way. So it's it's an ethics that pays attention to uh, the character of agents, to our personalities, to what we uh, to our virtues, whether we are uh, wise or foolish, uh, brave or cowardly. Uh, one reason for thinking that virtue ethics is relevant in the case of robots is it's hard to see how we can harm robots in any meaningful sense. It's hard to see how they might have rights. And so if there's anything wrong with it, it must be something to do with what it says about us. And I do think we care about what kind of people we are when we think ethically and so i think virtual ethics has some real power here and could you maybe give an example of relationships we now have with robots where our character is revealed one strange thing about talking about the ethics of our treatment with robots is that most people don't have any relationships with uh, what they recognize as robots i, I mean in actual fact your washing machine, the dishwasher, the automatic telling machine, they're all robots, but people don't think of them uh, as being uh, robots. So in a sense, it's quite hard to answer this question because most people don't have relationships with robots. But take robot pets. Some kids have robot pets. If you saw your child was, for instance, repeatedly trying to burn the robot pet uh, with a cigarette lighter, maybe the robot's got some heat sensors on it and the robot runs away and makes a squeaking noise and your child laughs and follows after it and tries to burn it some more, uh, you would start to wonder about what your child was learning through that experience and you'd start to wonder about what they were like. And so that's that's an example of a concern about character. Another case might be if you had a friend who was always polite uh, to male robots or robots that appeared male and always rude to robots that appeared female, uh, it would be hard to think that that didn't suggest that they were sexist, uh, even though no one's feelings, you know, the robots' feelings themselves aren't being hurt, the robots don't have a right to being treated politely, but it's pretty clear that that pattern of behaviour says something unfortunate about your friend. You also wrote an article about sex robots and... You also write that they are likely to play an important role in shaping our public understandings of sex and relationships between sexes in the future. And you wrote this in 2017. And I was wondering, how do you reflect now on the last six years? How did sex robots shape us? Or what did it reveal about us, who we are? Sex robots aren't a real thing. They're mostly a media uh construct. And so in some ways, I think that's why I was entirely right. Public attention to sex robots is really about uh, 
concerns about the objectification of women, uh, a, a sort of um, casualization of sex. It's, it's about se sexual ethics more generally. When people are talking about sex robots, they're really talking about sex and not robots. And we know that because there aren't very many uh, sex robots. There are some sex dolls, but there have been sex dolls around for a, a long time. And now there's some sex dolls that can talk in the same way that your mobile phone uh, can talk. But there aren't robots walking around with which people can have sex. So yes, that media discussion of sex robots is really just about um, what does sex mean, concerns about pornography and concerns about sexism in uh, our public understandings of sexuality. Virtual ethics also it is often dependent on the situation. Aristotle would, I think, also say you have to research the whole situation and then you know what the right thing is to do. You're absolutely right. Aristotle developed virtue ethics in, in part as a result of the recognition that what was involved in acting rightly or wrongly was always very contextual and it depended on what was going on around us and our, our relationship. So it is very much it's hard to say much about this woman's character, um, not having met her, not knowing what else was going on uh, at, the at the time. Uh, so context matters here, her feelings. Uh, matter here and for that uh, reason we shouldn't be too quick to judge there's a whole lot of shit going on in the world that is much worse than any, any mistreatment of a robot i guess is i mean there, there is something about these stories where people are fascinated because of the the image of the robot and that fear that the robots are coming it was philosophy professor robert sparrow from monas university you're in the wire for Ramadi Friday. Remember, you can text us in 5395 or give us a call on 0930938798. We'll be right back after this short break. So it's a very odd time to be alive, as they say. The Wire. 15 years old, eh? I remember when you were just knee-high to a nut bush. True, true, yeah, absolutely. You doing much to celebrate? Same old, eh? The whole month? You're a real friend, Ponsonby Social Club. Stay fresh, yeah? The same old Ponsonby Social Club is celebrating 15 years of being the most iconic bar on the strip with a month-long lineup of absolutely stellar music. Ponsonby Social Club's 15th birthday, all through March. Check out the full lineup at ponsonby.social. Magic is afoot at Rangihoa Estate for the ninth instalment of Flamingo Pier Waiheke. A three-day subtropical groove out featuring Harvey Sutherland, Mildlife, Ladyhawk, Frank Booker, Mara TK, Julian Dine, Nice Girl, Nathan Haynes and loads more. 95 BFM presents Flamingo Pier Waiheke, March 3rd to the 5th at Rangihoa Estate. For tickets and the full lineup, go to flamingopier.net. Audio Culture. Tune in to 95BFM Drive every second Tuesday as they're joined by one of our friends from Audio Culture, sharing the songs, stories, and salacious scandal from which is woven the mighty tapestry of New Zealand music. Audio Culture, more cultured than a blue cheese with a BA. Every other Tuesday on 95BFM Drive. Thanks to Audio Culture, Iwi Waiata, the noisy library of New Zealand music. Go to audioculture.co.nz. Their relationships with 
their girlfriends or their wives. Wife. No one. They shouldn't have more than one wife <laughs> at a time. Welcome back to The Wire for Ramere Friday. Our last piece of today is an excerpt from the latest playbook, um, which you can listen to on the 95BFM website under Bcasts. I spoke to Dr. Marilyn Gouraud, a senior marketing lecturer um, in business and economics about sports washing and its relation to the uh, Women's FIFA World Cup, which is coming up this year. Here she is now. Well, actually, um, sports washing, so all that concept of washing that we saw came come from this aspect is started by greenwashing when we talked about sustainability. So those were all those brands who were trying to be seen as green, but they were not really green. Now we're kind of like moving a little bit away from this. And what we're seeing more and more is this concept of sports washing. So sports, of course, is an area where a lot of people want to be associated with because of all the benefits. Um, so it's a brand that is trying through sports to either increase its brand image um so in the case of saudi arabia we can see that this is what they're trying to do so get a more positive image of their countries or just to try to get some of those good association that sports have of being healthy uh being close to people and all this this excitement so using things that are not um that you're not really normally associated with and using sports to get this either good reputation or good association there is a sponsorship deal between, I think, the Saudi Tourist Authority and the FIFA Women's World Cup. This has led to some mixed reactions. Uh, U.S. soccer star Alex Morgan has called this proposal quite bizarre, um, and it obviously has been linked to the whole sports washing situation. Um, could you give us a bit of background on this deal, or just why it's sort of garnered such labelled so controversial? Well, why it is so controversial. So I think first for any sponsorship, um, the goal is always for both parties will gain some um, some positive aspects. So of course, the the FIFA will get some uh, quite good like money from sponsorship. So it's quite a good deal if you think just about the money wise for women's sports. I think that a lot of people agree that it's something that is a very positive thing. It's putting more money, investing more money into women's sports and especially in football. So I think this part is really clear that a lot of people think it's it's a good thing. It's more what the where the money is coming from and what is behind this decision that people have mixed feeling. So why is it so controversial? Well, I think it's pretty clear that the image or actually the rules in um, in Saudi like so Visit Saudi is really trying to get people to have a better opinion of who they are and establishing themselves also in terms of the sports scene. We can see it also with a few of the things they're doing with the with golf, etc. But so being a bit more present, but also changing or kind of like not really actually. At, um, they're not really talking about this, but it's the fact that we know love the rules and the women are quite restrained in this country. And now you're trying to associate yourself with a women's sports event, where a lot of the women there don't have necessarily the freedom to do, um, even to get a job without their husband consent. So. It's really about that. So it's it's not about the fact that is it a good thing or not. Like I think in general, it's a good thing that we're investing money. It's more who the sponsor is and the goal behind it, or uh, why are they doing they are they doing that? 
Now, Sports Minister Grant Robertson has urged FIFA to consider the empowerment of women and girls amidst this controversy related to the Saudi sponsorship. In this sort of situation, if Saudi were to go ahead and you know have that focus be on empowerment of women and girls, it would still be marked as, as sports washing. Is that quite a difficult to navigate? Well, it is. And um, the thing is, I'm sure there's, Certain and that's always um, the gray area with a few, and even we saw it as I said when we were talking about written washing, uh, maybe a decade or two ago. A few of those uh, initiatives are real and they're true, but some of them are actually uh, more for marketing purposes or to. It's kind of it's not really actual things that are happening. So that's also the problem with all the sports washing, is that a lot of the time. Um, it's more about, yeah, like making people aware of certain things, but actually in the reality, nothing is really happening. Um, and we saw that, yeah, quite a lot, like I said, in greenwashing a few years ago, like a lot of companies were saying that they were being green and sustainable, but at the end of the day, they were not, or um, they could do so much more. But I think now what we're seeing is the same thing with sports washing as we're seeing a lot of those countries and Qatar does a little bit the same thing as trying to get people to um, to just change for their opinion, of course, be more of um, like and establishing better relations with other countries and not actually changing what is happening there or um, how people are being treated even when they go to an event, for example. So this is kind of the problem with sports washing is that it's it's often more about public relations and marketing and than it is actually about changing things and really um, being proactive in terms of women's sports or um, any events that you want to sponsor. And would you say this is concerning given that at the moment we're seeing quite a rise um, in popularity of women's football in specific, you know, with the Euros and last year and England really pushing, with England winning, really pushing out that reality that uh, girls can grow up and be these uh, these larger-than-life athletes and really, you know, chase their dreams of, of playing on, a, on an international stage at a high level. Well, definitely, and we saw it with just so I think there's it's definitely a problem and, and probably we need to to think more as consumers and as fans about about that, and of course, the media are doing a little bit of their their job in making people uh see those issues, but we saw that even with the FIFA World Cup, how all the um, you know the press conference and a lot of the pre events was more about. Um, Qatar and all their their laws and everything versus the event. The problem is with the FIFA, it, it was fine because at the end of the day, it's such a popular event and it didn't really over uh, comp- like it didn't go over. Uh, it was not too much. But with women's sports, the problem is we want all the visibility to be around the athletes. So I think if we like right now, we're talking a lot more, not about the fact that a brand has decided to sponsor the FIFA and it's a great thing. We're more talking about like why are they doing this and the controversies around this. So that's first for me, that's a little bit of a problem that I see is like we should be talking more about women's sports and those brands were trying to invest money in, in women's sports, which is a really, really good thing, as I said, because and you, you mentioned a lot of those points, the more money comes into women's sports after 
well, it's easier to develop sports from grassroots or uh, from a younger age. And after, you can actually get a lot more in terms of events. And, yeah, so those women and those young girls can see examples and role models uh, as they grow. So it's very interesting. So it's one thing that is a bit problematic. The other thing is, as I said, is we're seeing more and more of those countries who are doing that. And they're pretty much trying now to uh, get their hands on pretty much all the events that are available. And they're doing this for, for international reputation. They're doing this to establish alliances. And a lot of them are saying they're trying to establish alliances with yeah, Great Britain and UK. So they're doing it for a reason. And at some point, we should also be responsible in the way we um, attribute, I would say, probably events and also money in terms of or accepting money uh, from those if they're not actually doing their part or they're not actually as, as good as they say they are. That was Dr. Marilyn Gros from the University of Auckland, a sorry, a senior marketing lecturer of business and economics at the University of Auckland, speaking about sports washing and its relation to the 2023 Women's FIFA World Cup. That was the wire. Ko ere te hotaka katoa mō tēnei wiki, ne te mihi ki a koutou katoa e kororo mau ki o mō rā. And that is a wrap on the Friday Wire, our last Friday Wire, Daniel. True, a, unfortunately. Unfortunately, no, I mean, it's been great. It's been great. Um, thank you so much for being a wonderful producer. Um, we're not going anywhere, though. We'll still be on the Wire, just not on the same show. Um, you can catch Daniel producing on the Monday Wire with um, your host, Jess. And you can catch me on the Wednesday Wire as well, hosting that. Um, and yeah, thank you to everyone that texted in. Thank you to everyone that spoke with us today. Stephen Jackson, Professor of Sport Policy and Politics at the University of Otago. Dr. Marilyn Garrow, a Senior Marketing Lecturer um, in Business and Economics at the University of Auckland. City Councillor Mike Lee and Philosophy P- Professor Robert Sparrow from the Monash University. Thanks for tuning in. You are listening to 95BFM. Murray's next to me. Land of the Good Groove up next from 1 to 2. You know where you're at. Kakite, you're on BFM. That was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.